0: Worst damn fool mistake I ever made was letting myself be elected vice president of the United States. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans. We're three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State, share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkoski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Olstrom. This week we continue our discussion of Texas' first Speaker of the House and Vice President john nance garner but first what's your favorite dramatic performance from uvalde born matthew mcconaughey well it's my
1: birthday brother we both were born on november 4th (laughs)
0: that's true it is true true.
2: well happy birthday sean yeah brothers by another mother and father in a completely different year
1: (laughs) (laughs) only four years only four years my wife was like my wife was like he's 48 i was like yeah i'm 44 We're only four years apart. Anyway. Well, uh, is Bernie a drama? Mm. Nah. Mm. I think it's not. How about Uh, that dragon movie? Rain of Uh, Fire. Rain Rain of Fire. Fire. That's a great movie. That's a good... No, uh, my favorite dramatic performance is Interstellar. I think that's an amazing movie, and he's fantastic in it. I also like Contact. Yeah, I also like Contact. That was really good, too.
0: Yeah, I think Interstellar is definitely the best meme performance from a drama. Yes. The one seat. Yeah. I love him crying. I can watch that for hours. Uh. <laughs> All right. Well, my
2: favorite dramatic McConaughey performance has got to be Lincoln X K Z the movie, uh, or maybe maybe Wild Turkey. He's pretty good in Wild Turkey. One of oh, those. Oh man. Really though, seriously, um, whichever one he plays with a Texan accent is going to be my favorite. Oh. He doesn't
1: actually speak in the Wild Turkey movie, I don't think.
2: No, that's okay. He doesn't need to. That's cool. Well, my thing is this. Oh, oh, I take it back. There's one that I want to single out. Um, It actually just came out a couple years ago. Uh, It was a movie called Mud. Oh, yeah. Uh, And uh, that's one of those uh, small little indie dramas that kind of uh, allows him, allowed him to just kind of play a character piece in that. And uh, it was really good. I remember that movie.
0: Well, uh, I got to say, I mean, dramatic performance. Uh, I got you all beat. It's Fool's Gold. (laughs) <laughs> fool's gold saw clive that in Kussler. the theater why when i don't remember Kussler? i think it was a date night, date my, night.
2: oh i'm confusing it with sahara
0: yeah uh, it was, sahara. Yeah, no, was sahara. also in that hey, sahara do was not, not
1: besmirch <laughs>
0: you got a bunch <laughs> of history nerds on the line we're awesome. not gonna put clive cussler down okay <laughs> not in my house scott not in my house
1: Fool's Gold was a piece of gold.
0: Sorry. I was, <laughs> I, I was uh, romantic, confused by the talk about gold. It's a romantic adventure comedy. Uh, and it had Theo in it. It's great. <laughs> it's got a few great gags in it. It's got some great gags in it. I enjoyed it. I laughed. You'll enjoy it. Uh, but a serious movie, honestly, it's like his, his performance in Dallas Buyers Club. First, it's got the word Dallas in the title, which hooked me from the beginning because it's a Texas podcast. But, you know, he... like. I get hungry just thinking about him in that movie because he was so gaunt and skinny and, and he was just an intense performance. Oh, and I also have an old D V D copy of A Time to Kill if anybody wants to borrow it. Well, That's a VHS a great... copy. Uh no, no, I don't have VHS. I'm not that old I'm not as old as you, Sean. But Great Flicks and Uvalde native, so we salute you, but let's talk about another Uvalde guy. And get back to our John Nance Garner episode. Last week we discussed the early life and rise to political power of Uvalde's own John Nance, Cactus Jack Garner, who rose from simple country lawyer to Speaker of the United States House of Representatives over the course of just 30 years. He was the first Texan to do so and was the undisputed master of the House, one of the most powerful Democrats in America by 1932. So, with the poor handling of the Great Depression by the Republican
1: Herbert Hoover administration, it was clear at that time that just about any Democrat would win the presidency in 1932. Garner's prominence as Speaker of the House and in the Democratic Party made him a serious candidate for the job. He even had the backing of newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst, who some people may know as the man who was the inspiration of the movie Citizen Kane. Now, Garner did not pursue his campaign pretty much at all, but especially not vigorously. But as the convention time approached, he did have 90 Texas and California votes that were critical to the Democratic nomination, but he was about 100 short. At the Democratic National Convention, Garner chose to release his delegates' votes to Franklin D. Roosevelt on the fourth ballot. The result was that Roosevelt became indebted to Garner and to Texas, and Garner was offered the vice presidential nomination. He wasn't there at the convention, but when he was notified at his home, he sent back a letter with a three-cent stamp to formally but reluctantly accept the nomination. Now, according to
2: conservative political writer George Will, a political certainty of the time was that the South would vote Democratic and no Southerner could be elected president. The South's consolation price, and indeed price, was that they were often given the vice president's position to enable a Northern Democratic candidate to win a clear victory. Garner certainly would do that, but what's more, it was thought that his personal connections in both the House and the Senate, and his vast and peerless knowledge of the legislative process in both chambers, would make him an invaluable operative on the Hill, especially to someone with as many sweeping plans as FDR. On November 8, 1932, he was simultaneously elected to the Vice Presidency and re-elected to Congress. He resigned from Congress on March 4th,
0: 1933. Well, uh, at the time, inauguration was March 4th. Next to the president, Garner was the single most important man in the New Deal. This was Roosevelt's comprehensive effort to bring the country out of its worst economic crisis in history. Garner's ability to make friends and his political knowledge combined to give him respect and great persuasive powers. And the president made him his liaison with Congress beyond his normal role of just presiding over the Senate. This decision proved to be a wise move, for Garner had his own congressional machine. Nineteen members of the Senate had served with him in the House, and he was a personal friend of virtually every legislator. Garner also had tremendous influence with the Texas congressional delegation, especially with the slightly younger Samuel T. Rayburn of Northeast Texas, Garner's birthplace. This was invaluable especially from 1933 to 1938, when eight Texans held regular committee chairmanships and two chaired special committees, and Rayburn then became the House Majority Leader in 1937. The Texas delegation at this point was possibly the most powerful in congressional history. Garner's work in Congress became, in many
1: ways, black ops before anyone even knew what that was. His knowledge of the strengths and weaknesses of the chambers let him pull the strings to push bills through that favored the president's agenda or bury those that worked against it. He was, as one writer stated, quote, a mole rather than an eagle. He perfected the art of acting as the wise old man of Congress. His most effective tools were the continuation of his old Board of Education meetings over Bourbon and Branchwater, where he would counsel reluctant congressmen to go his way. Others, less kindly, called this treatment being taken to Garner's doghouse. Another frequent place for deals and discussion was over the poker table. This area of
2: influence and persuasion made Garner what most of his contemporaries agreed was the most powerful vice president in history. In the course of the hundred days, the special session of the legislature called by Roosevelt to inaugurate the New Deal programs... Garner was critical in helping to push through the legislation that characterized this phase of the program. Although Garner didn't always agree with the administration's programs, especially deficit spending, he threw his support behind the New Deal, ensuring that the Senate Majority Leader appointed allies to the right conference committees to pass the New Deal legislation, and was especially good at gaveling bills through the Senate. His activity was of paramount importance to the administration. His personal friendship with Braeburn as one of the leaders of the Democratic caucus in the House was essential in smoothing over any differences between the chambers.
1: Yeah, I read that they would ride to the Capitol together about every day and, and talk. So
0: it's nice.
1: an important back-channel communication.
0: Personally, though, Garner loathed the office of the vice presidency. The power he wielded was informal and not codified and only maintained through personal effort. Officially, the job was only to gavel bills and vote to break ties. Roosevelt, the Senate Majority Leader, and the Speaker of the House held role power in government. Over time, Garner drifted from Roosevelt's inner circle, mostly due to their very different view of the role of government. Garner was
1: an old-line Democrat with a progressive-era background. He didn't like big business, and he looked at the New Deal as a way to correct the excesses of the markets, and to give stability to the economy. He swallowed heavy deficit spending because it put people to work and it added to the country's infrastructure. And this, of course, helps with votes for the Democrat candidates. Again, you put people to work, they're always gonna be grateful. He disagreed, though, with the drift towards welfare state concepts, you know, where the government was just going to be giving handouts. And he did not like favoritism towards labor unions. His antipathy towards labor unions was definitely reciprocated. Labor leader and founder of the AFL, John L. Lewis, characterized Garner as a, quote, labor-baiting, poker-playing, whiskey-drinking, evil old man. Hmm. Say what you mean, John. Yeah. Now, despite his
2: concerns, Garner ran with Roosevelt for re-election in 1936, though he didn't actively campaign. They won a sweeping victory, and it was seen as a validation for Roosevelt's policies. Just a few months after the election, though, the administration's response to the labor strikes at the end of 1936 caused the first breaking point for Garner. He thought the strikers had violated property rights, and he became furious because he thought that Roosevelt gave tacit support to the unions. Early in January 1937, Garner had an angry discussion with the president over this issue. Afterward, Garner believed that Roosevelt preferred the suggestions of liberal advisers rather than his own or those of congressional leaders, and quietly began
0: building support of like-minded conservative Democrats. Roosevelt's plan in 1937 to expand the Supreme Court and the power of the president to control its composition caused a full-on split between the president and the vice president. The Supreme Court had blocked several of FDR's New Deal efforts, and he sought to reform it and packed the court with more amenable justices. This plan split the Democratic Party in both houses of Congress, dashing the unity it had during Roosevelt's first administration. Garner's loyalty was to the party first, and Congress second, and he felt that Roosevelt's plan gave him, as president, far too much personal power at the expense of Congress. Therefore, he vehemently opposed the plan. During debate on the plan, Garner expressed disapproval of the bill by holding his nose and giving a thumbs down from the rear of the Senate chamber. He also refused to lobby in support of the plan.
1: During the midst of the struggle in the summer of 1937, Garner went on vacation to Uvalde. This was an act that really publicized the rift between him and FDR. In July, Roosevelt's chief supporter of the court-packing plan was Senate Majority Leader Joseph Robinson of Arkansas. He died in his apartment of a heart attack after uh, several days of vigorous debate. Garner returned to Washington, and he informed President Roosevelt, you are beat. You haven't got the votes. In the end, a much smaller and much less comprehensive judicial reform bill was passed, but the damage to the Roosevelt-Garner relationship was done. Now,
2: Garner found himself the leader of a group of conservative Democrats and Republicans dedicated to do what they could to scuttle the later phases of the New Deal. One commentator called Garner the, quote, conniver-in-chief of the opposition. Now, almost anything that did not meet with Garner's approval was in trouble. By 1938, he was opposed to most of the New Deal proposals, especially those involving deficit spending. Secretary of the Interior Harold Ikes said that Garner was sticking his knife into the president's back. Garner used all his influence to prevent a purge of conservative Democrats in Congress. He was often supported by his friend Sam Rayburn, who was also growing and disenchanted with President Roosevelt. With Rayburn at the head,
0: an opposition bloc now voted against almost everything that the president desired. In the interest of party harmony, Garner did meet with Roosevelt on December 17, 1938, for the first time in six months. The meeting didn't do anything to restore Roosevelt's confidence in Garner. Publicly, the two men never acknowledged the split, but privately, they grew to detest each other. Sadly, this feud irrevocably colored the legacy of Garner as vice president. Historians have by consensus thought that Garner was more responsible than anyone for implementing Roosevelt's programs, but also that Garner did more than anyone else to prevent the full completion of the New Deal. In 1939,
1: it was anticipated that Roosevelt would bow to tradition and not seek a third term for the presidency. Numerous Democratic Party leaders urged Garner to run for president in 1940, even though he was in his 70s. Garner's status as the champion of traditional Democratic Party establishment Garner's status as the champion of the traditional Democratic Party establishment was thought to give him an edge, and he could pull in Republican voters who were opposed to the New Deal. A Gallup poll showed that Garner was a favorite among Democrat voters. Time magazine wrote about him on April 15, 1940, quote, Cactus Jack is 71, sound of wind and limb. A hickory conservative who does not represent the old south of Magnolia's Hoopskirts, pillared verandas, but the New South, money-making, industrial, hard-boiled, still expanding too rapidly to brood over social programs. He stands for oil derricks, sheriffs who use airplanes, prairie skyscrapers, mechanized farms, $100 Stetson hats. Conservative John Garner appeals to many a conservative voter. In the months leading up to the Democratic National Convention, Roosevelt
2: refused to say whether he would run again. Garner declared his candidacy and began campaigning on a platform that opposed most of Roosevelt's policies and, on principle, opposed presidents serving third terms. Roosevelt didn't publicly declare his candidacy, but at each of the primaries, he was on the ballot and he won every one. At the convention, Roosevelt deftly engineered a, quote, spontaneous call for his renomination and won the first ballot. Garner got only 61 votes out of 1,093. With that, he was out. Roosevelt chose his progressive Secretary of Agriculture, Henry A. Wallace, to be his running mate. Garner returned to Uvalde and vowed never to cross the
0: Potomac again. Ha! Take that, Washington. <laughs> Back in 1936, after getting reelected, he he told reporters that he had planned to go back to Texas in four years, and he intended to live until he was 93. He'd had 46 years in public life and wanted to have one more year in private life than he had in public. But privately, Garner regretted his turn as vice president. He told his friend, Texas historian Frank Tolbert, quote, "'Worst damn fool mistake I ever made was letting myself be elected vice president of the United States.'" should have stuck with my old chores as Speaker of the House. I gave up the second most important job in the government for one that didn't amount to a hill of beans. I spent eight long years as Mr. Roosevelt's spare tire. I might still be Speaker if I didn't let them elect me Vice President. Still, he was proud of his friend Sam Rayburn, who had become Speaker of the House and had taken over his Board of Education sessions. Rayburn would go on to be the longest-serving Speaker in American history, Indelibly making his mark on Congress's character. Roosevelt was reelected once more before dying in office, and the principle of two terms as president became codified into a constitutional amendment after his death. Garner spent the rest of his years in his beloved
1: Uvalde, where he managed his extensive real estate holdings. He spent time with his grandchildren and great grandchildren, and he fished. He didn't play an official role in political life, although Democratic politicians in Texas and the country at large continued to consult him. He was particularly close with Harry Truman, who was elected to the vice presidency for Roosevelt's fourth term and succeeded him when FDR passed away in office. In
2: 1941, they'd given Garner's extensive collection of 174 gavels, which he'd used in two years as speaker and eight years as vice president, to the University of Texas. They'd been sent to Garner by schoolchildren, chambers of commerce, and local civic groups, and he'd used them all with pride. In the late 1940s, Eddie burned his public and private papers, leaving only his scrapbook collection. They planned to travel, but were never able to. Eddie got sick in the mid-1940s and died in 1948, just after their 53rd wedding anniversary. Garner was heartbroken and moved out of his large ranch house and back into the little house next door where he and Eddie had started their life together. Garner donated his big house to the city of Uvalde to become a library in
0: memory of his wife. For the next two decades, Garner lived a quiet life of retirement in Uvalde. He visited with his friends and neighbors, celebrated birthdays with his grandchildren and the children of the town at the library, and he avoided interviews and public comments though he'd occasionally answer questions from old writer friends. Democratic politicians made sure to seek out his advice and blessing whenever they were in Texas. Perhaps the most
1: famous quote attributed to John Garner came from a conversation he had with Lyndon Baines Johnson when Johnson was considering accepting the Democratic nomination for vice president in 1960. Johnson was from Stonewall, which was a few hundred miles north of Uvalde. He'd been a freshman representative in 1937, right when Garner broke with FDR. And although Johnson had been a New Deal supporter, he grew close to Rayburn, and he paid even closer attention to the legend of John Garner. LBJ had moved on to the Senate after the war, and had become an increasingly powerful figure in Washington. First, it was as Senate Minority Leader, and then later as Senate Majority Leader. Johnson's tactics of influence and persuasion took Garner's to the next level, and he was famed for applying the treatment to friends and foes alike. Johnson had sought the Democratic nomination
2: for president in 1960, but like Garner 30 years before, found himself a rural Southerner facing off with a charismatic upper-class Northerner. He sought Garner's advice on whether he should take the number two position. Garner allegedly told him that the job was, quote, not worth a bucket of warm piss this story may be apocryphal and there may be more to the story. If it's true, then it's ironic that Johnson went on to become a vice president that was nearly as powerful and effective as Garner had been before him and used many of the same tactics, strengths, and skills to do so.
0: On the morning of Garner's 95th birthday, November 22, 1963, President John F. Kennedy called from Dallas to wish him a happy birthday with LBJ present. A few hours later, President Kennedy was dead, and Johnson was now president. Dan Rather visited the Garner ranch that morning to film a rare interview with Garner, where the Miss Texas Wool was in attendance. He flew back to Dallas from Uvalde to deposit the film at the then-CBS affiliate KRLD-TV and learned that the president had been shot. Not quite four years later, on November 7, 1967, at the age of 98, Garner died and was buried next to Eddie and Uvalde. He'd outlived his prediction by nearly six years. In his death, Garner was extensively
1: honored in Texas. His scrapbook collection was donated to the University of Texas' Baker History Collection alongside his gavels. Garner State Park, which is located 30 miles north of Uvalde, bears his name, as does Garner Field just east of Uvalde. The women's dormitory at Southwest Texas Junior College, also in Uvalde, bears his wife Eddie's name. John Garner Middle School, which is located in San Antonio's Northeast Independent School District, is also named after him. At the
2: time of his death, Garner became the longest-lived vice president in U.S. history, surpassing Levi P. Morton, Benjamin Harrison's vice president, who had died in 1920 on his 96th birthday. Garner and Schuyler Colfax, vice president under Ulysses S. Grant, are the only two vice presidents to have been Speaker of the House of Representatives prior to becoming vice president. As the vice president is also the president of the Senate, Garner and Colfax are the only people to have served as the presiding officer of both houses of Congress. Garner ranks with Sam Houston, Sam Rayburn, and LBJ as undoubtedly the most powerful Texan politicians in the history of the Lone Star State. I mean,
0: you don't mess with Cactus Jack. That's what I learned in this story. You gotta admire that grit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is
1: well, some grit.
2: Yeah, and I think it really speaks to you know his own personal convictions and fortitude that he went from you know supporting. President Roosevelt and uh, what he saw as the good parts of the New Deal, to turning around and completely opposing the things that he disagreed with, and there did not seem to be very much. Um, there wasn't a lot of waffling in Garner's character. Um, he he picked his, he picked his direction. He picked his uh, his stance on things, and he stuck to
0: it. Well, I just think what's interesting here too is that like when you look at these these barbs of. Roosevelt needed this guy to get things done, and he got things done, but he also realized that like he did not enjoy being the power behind the throne, and he did not want to be this deal maker that just ran around and did stuff and and especially when the ideologies began to clash um I did find it interesting that when he he said, "Well, I'm out of here, and he goes back to Uvalde uh in the summer of thirty seven it rang a bell for me because, um, and we haven't talked about it in an episode yet, but in May of 1937, FDR took the presidential yacht down to Aransas Pass and spent several weeks off the Texas coast vacationing. So when he's writing the, like when they're having this back and forth, like they're literally just sending, me, you know, mail a couple hundred miles inland from the Texas coast back and forth, arguing with each other
1: yeah i it's a fascinating time in american history i i I kind of agree i i what is what is astonishing to me and i I didn't realize this was like it said how powerful the texas delegation was in congress Mm -hmm. at that time like you've got so many committees that you're that they're chairing and you've got the the majority leader and you've got the vice president um and, and you know Rayburn was really the power behind the throne in the in the house because uh, they went through after after Garner was elected vice president they went through like two or three speakers who died in office um so you know and who were maybe sick or, or not doing well so they they had uh you know there was some there was some instability in the house and it was really Rayburn who who kind of stepped up and said I, you know I'm going to be the power here and keep things keep things under control, um, and and to Raymond's credit, during the war, once once the war occurred and really once Roosevelt's third term ter- came around, he uh, was a big supporter of FDR as well. You know, of getting making sure the president's agenda of preparing for the war and and then conducting the war was was facilitated. So,
0: well, that's the interesting thing too about this is that you know thirty seven is you know you've got the crash of the Hindenburg summer of 37, you've got um, the start of the war in Europe. You know, everything is building to a head. Well, all
1: two years later, but yeah, no, 37 know. was... Yeah, yeah then 39
0: is when the start of the war is happening. I we was saying 39 is... 37 was Hindenburg, 38, there's Trouble of Ruin, 39, yeah. the war starts. Like, there's so much stuff happening outside of the world, but if you just are reading... You know, the, if you're just a policy wonk in D.C., you know, you're, there's this internal fight going on inside of who's going to be in control of the Democratic Party and what's the direction things need to go and how everything begins to split. And this this wonderful coalition that rolled in at the beginning of FDR's term is now just splitting apart.
1: Well, and that's, you know, most historians tend to agree that it—, it that- there's, there's a lot of debate about what the, the, the New Deal did for the country uh, in terms of recovering, did it extend the de- depression? did it make it better? Yeah there's still a lot of debate about that. Most people agree that it, absolutely the war the war effort I- eliminated and ended the depression in this country. but you know one thing that is as clear that occurred from the New Deal, was there's two things one we've talked about before which is all the infrastructure uh jobs and infrastructure projects such as big bend national park and the san antonio riverwalk and the all these many things that occurred you know mm-hmm. the, the, that these programs built uh, you know Paladura canyon uh the 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 national parks improvements throughout the country yes those things were absolutely new deal programs and That's one thing that that happened was jobs were created for people, and my family in particular, my great-grandfather got a job in the WPA, and he would, for the rest of his life, vote a Democrat. He refused to even consider voting for a Republican to the extent that when my grandmother voted for a Republican, I don't know, and after he died, she felt guilty about it.
0: You know, yeah. well, so. same, same thing here. You know, we had the CCC as well. And that, yeah. that was something my grandfather had served in. And so it was just one of these things of so many aspects of Texas and the politics. And, you know, that, that Texas has been central to so much uh, and so much we can be really hang our hats on in terms of looking at just the history that, yes, this was an American thing that was happening, but, you know, this texas coalition and there were the minds behind it and the mind behind the throne a lot of important people from the state and none of this would have happened none
1: a lot of that would not have happened without garner really smoothing through all of this legislation and you know before that he was as a as a speaker of the house even just for a year and as a as a house majority leader uh or i'm sorry as a house minority leader he was you know constantly fighting with the the republicans who were struggling to respond to mm-hmm. the, the great depression so
0: well, yeah, this
1: was a country that the country was absolutely in in a crisis that had never seen before and really is you know other than other than the civil war and you know wartime it, this was the greatest peacetime crisis in american history so well i, I love absolutely the, it's critical
0: i love the quote you found from the time magazine yes yeah. <laughs> he sounded wind and limb a hickory <laughs> conservative yeah I just like yeah
1: hundred dollar stetson hats it's like a hundred dollar stetson hat nineteen thirty nineteen forty that's a that's a lot of money for a stetson hat
0: yeah, I know a hundred dollars in nineteen forty today would be seventeen hundred and sixty one dollars wow. wow. that'd be an almost eighteen hundred dollar hat <laughs> That's a that's a fancy hat. There. That is the fanciest hat I've ever seen. That is, I don't even know what the most expensive <laughs> Stetson hat is. I'm gonna have to look that up later. But I'm pretty sure they don't they don't do things for over two grand. Wow, but uh, yeah, that's that's amazing, amazing I, I, guy. I'm
1: gonna start using sound of wind and, and limb.
0: But I mean, so long lived, and the fact that you know he just, he, and he was present on the day of of kennedy's assassination in a in a weird connection
1: yeah i'd love to hear dan rather talk about that
0: i know i am just another I just, great text i just uh, saw a great uh, a great post from him saying i've got a fridge full of cold diet dr pepper a bottle of whiskey and a bunch of fritos i'm ready to watch the election <laughs> yeah uh so one of the things that made me
1: want to do an episode on garner was uh i have a book that i bought it Half price books for like a dollar um, And it is a book it's, it's a bit of an older book but it's uh, John Garner cartoons And it's commemorating the 90th Birthday of the former speaker of the house uh, And it's a Texas Memorial Museum publication I think it's a reprint of something that they published Back you know in the 50s um, I can't even find it may not be I can't find a date for like When the book is published uh, But uh, 1958 But uh, it's cartoons, it's editorial cartoons, uh, from his entire career. And they're very funny, although completely I have very little context (laughs) to to be able to laugh at, Uh, very obscure context. But it's really interesting, you know, some of these political cartoons and and like kind of what they're trying to say. So, and then it's also got a ton of letters congratulating him. Uh, Congratulating him on his birthday. And it's got a bunch of pictures, a picture of his grandmother, a picture of his mother, uh, uh, pictures of Eddie, of the house. So it's, it's really a neat book. Uvalde, home of the next
0: president. I know, right? <clears throat> yeah, That's crazy. Well, listen, if you're in Uvalde, if you're on your way to Del Rio out of San Antonio, stop in, say hello to the man buried in the graveyard there next to his precious eddie yeah and his house his little house
1: is still there and so is his big house the, the library is still there
0: i know all these wonderful roadside stops another yet another stop on your texas road trip well, that wraps things up for today you can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com we'd love to hear from you so like and share us on facebook follow the show on twitter at texas Podcast, or go to brainstaple.com and leave some feedback You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. You love the show, so get out there and help us out. Tell your friends about what we're doing. And go leave a review on iTunes, because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast, where you too can become a come and take it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.